and amen. All right, so we are, again, in our series, Stories, all right, Storytelling. And I don't know if you guys know how many thoughts you have in a day. I, I did a quick Google search on how many thoughts that we have in a day. And basically, they say on a conservative scale that we, we average over 50,000 thoughts a day, right? And they say, and for some of us, that number gets up to approximately 70,000. So somewhere between 50,000 and 70,000 thoughts or 50 to 70,000 stories come throughout our minds throughout, um, and that compete with us on any given day. No, more, no wonder it says um, to us, basically, that um, in Colossians chapter 3 and 2, where Paul is encouraging our, um, the church at Colossae to keep our minds on things above, not on earthly things. But as we recognize how hard that is, I mean, if you just think about how hard it is when you have over 50 to 70,000 thoughts coming in each day, and our goal and our ambition is to stay focused, to stay, remain, or keep our focus on him, it's no wonder why so many of us lose our attention from day to day, especially when we're trying to keep our minds stayed on the Lord. I remember this uh, theologian, basically, he said he made it his one ambition is that, and, and he says that my one ambition is to keep my mind stayed on Christ through, for a 24-hour period. And he said that, he said for months, and he was just journaling, and he was after three months, he said this is one of the hardest things that he's done. And then he says after six months, he says, he says after six months of trying to do this and to keep my mind focused on Jesus, he said, I've been able to spend about, he said, about a third of my day that I'm able to focus. He says, it's one of the hardest things that I've ever done. But he says, but it's also been one of the most fruitful and most rewarding things that I've ever done. He says, by me just focusing in and on keeping a third of my day focused in on Jesus, it seems like everything else pales in comparison. You know, and really that's the heart, that's the goal. Um, one theologian says is that the human heart is an idol-making factory. It just keeps throwing, going up, new images, new thoughts, new things. That wants to compete with the Lord, wants to compete with his priority in our life. I, it's it's kind of reminds me, at, at um, and even today reminds me of when I was raised and my mom and dad would leave and they would say, hey, but clean the house up before you go, right? You, I don't know if you guys had that, but it's clean the house before you go. And, you know, and it would come and, then it, you know, I, it was real clear. And I knew they were leaving. And guess what? I knew they were coming back. Right? I knew that they were coming back, but it would seem like every time, no matter what, I, I would always seem to get distracted. Something would just seem to get my attention, to get my focus. And, I, and then it was in that, even though that in the background, I always knew that that was coming. It, 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 my distraction kept me off focus. And it wasn't until I would always see the lights turning into the driveway that I would be like, oh. And then I would try to do all that I was supposed to do in preparing and being ready for my parents to come back home, I tried to do it in a flash, and it always led to me getting in trouble, right? And a lot of times, this is what I feel like what Jesus is telling us this parable today. He's talking to us, and he's, he said, where is our focus? 
And it's in times and times of a pandemic and the times of all the, the, the strife, the tension and the time of an economic demise and the time of all of the things that is going on that it is real easy for us to lose our attention, to lose focus or to start thinking about things that are set on earth and not things that are set in heaven. And so what we see is that Jesus is giving us a list of parables, a list of, um, that he's given us back to back. And if you remember last week that he just talked about the parable of the rich fool. And it's, it's sort of as if he was saying, you fool, you are focusing on the wrong things. Your life is demanded of you today. The lights are turning in to the driveway and you're coming home. You're coming home and you build all of your things. You focus all of your attention on building up these houses that, and building up the storehouse to store all of your wealth, all of your resources to know that you're not bringing any of it with you. And so the lights, and as the lights come in, basically what Jesus' message is to you and what Jesus' message to us today, as it was then, is the, 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 the common phrase that we have heard before. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. So this is where we're at. Luke chapter 12, verses 35. I'm going to read to verses 40, 48. And the big idea is simply today is this, God's people stays ready. God's people stay ready. All right, let's read it again in Luke chapter 12, 35. It says, be ready for service and have your lamps lit. You are to be like people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes, and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will get ready. Have them recline at the table, then come and serve them. If he comes in the middle of the night or even if near dawn and finds them alert, blessed are those servants. But know this. If the homeowner had known what the hour of the thief was coming, he would have not left his house to be broken into. You also be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Basically, we're going to break this sermon up into about two, two halves, right? This is the first half, is um, verses 35 to 40. Then we're going to look at the second half that's parsed with the question in verses 41 through 48, right? But Jesus, in the midst of all of these parables and all of these stories and, and talking about um, the a focus and where we to put our focus, don't put our focus on the material possessions that we're wroth, um, um, where things may... Um, rust and we're, things that we're not going to be able to take with us. Like, don't put our focus on that, but keep your focus on the things that are set above. Basically, he's repeating, or Paul is repeating what Jesus' point here is that set our minds on things above, not on earthly things, not on earthly things. And so right here, he, he leads with this kind of, with this um, proposition, that he says, and he bookends the proposition in this first section, um, and it says, be ready for service. Be ready for service. And then in verse 40, he says, you also be ready, right? And so there's in here that he's letting us know that we are to stay ready so that we don't have to get ready. So in, in, in this first um, kind of 
imperative that he gives us. He says, be ready for service and have your lamps lit. And have your lamps lit. This is basically another form. It was an actual cultural idiom that was used in that time. It, it's sort of like a, a statement that they had, which that, that some of your translations may have gird your loins up or let your loins be girded up. Right. So in this time, basically, the people, the Jewish leaders, they would have cloaks and they would have things on. And so anytime they were needed to prepare to be swift or to move, it would sort of like what they would do is that they would take their cloak or they would take it the outer garments, and they would lift it up kind of ready to, ready to run, ready to move. So it's just like getting ready to do something. It's sort of like, you know, back in the days, back when you were in school, we don't think about this stuff now, but back in the school when the girl was about to fight, they start taking out the earrings and stuff. It's like, you know that, right, I'm about to get ready, right? Or they're about to run in a race and somebody got their Crocs on and, and so they start taking off their Crocs and they're just like, and it's sort of like they're getting ready because they know that activity is about to take place. And, and so what we see right here is that Jesus says, gird your loins up, get ready, get in the posture, get in the position to get ready. And then not only does he say that, he says, and keep your lights lit, keep them ready at all times. Don't turn off the lights, be ready, right? Be ready, keep it going, be ready at all times. Times. And what we see right here in these verses is that Jesus gives both a positive example, but he also gives us a negative example. He gives us one of the positive example, and he talks about the wedding banquet, right? And this is the, 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 the positive. And then he, the negative example that he goes, he talks about a thief that's coming in in the night, right? And so in verse 35 to 40, we, we see this idea of getting ready, staying ready, Staying ready. And so in this wedding example that he gives, that what we see is that these, he calls the people servants. He says these servants, some may say slaves, basically this idea is doulos. These are willing servants, people who are coming to tend to, um, um, to the, the master in this time. And so this master would go away and what, what would happen was is that he, as he was going to this wedding feast, the problem was is that no one knew exactly how long the wedding could, was going to take. A wedding could take in those days anywhere from one day. It's not like what we had today where it was like 30 minutes, but the whole entire ceremony could go anywhere from one day to up to a week in time. And so you never knew exactly how long the master was going to be. So in this, the point is, is that is it saying no matter if he comes at this time or if he comes at that time, always be ready. So he tells them to be ready in this time. And so Jesus says to the faithful um, people there that they, even though you don't know when they are, it's not even enough just to wait. But I want you to be alert. And there's a difference between waiting and being alert. And that's no matter what time that he comes. It, it kind of reminds me of the, the time, again, when I was young, when it was just like not just about being ready, but staying alert, right? It was um, when I was young, my, I played football, and, and um, I remember like my, my mom and my dad, they would leave and and as they would leave, and I would have to, you know, go to practice, and I'd be ready for practice. You know how I was very forgetful, you know, earlier on when they told me to clean up the house. But it would seem like I felt like I was never forgetful about the time it was for football practice or basketball practice. And any time football practice or basketball practice was, I would always think that they were forgetful, 
of the time that I needed to be there. And so what I would do is that I would always kind of not just wait for my parents, but I would be alert for my parents, right? And because it was something that I was anticipating, something I wanted to get to, because during that day, football was my God. It was everything to me. It was what I desired to do. And so I would always get my pads and I would put my pads right by the door, and whether I was right inside the door, but most of the times I would be outside the door and I would kind of stand at the street. And then, you know, instead of seeing the lights come on, it's like I see them coming from down the street. And as they're coming down the street and they're turning in, it's actually, it's like I'm virtue signaling and I'm saying, listen, you don't even have to get out your car. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I can just jump in and we can just go, right? And there's a difference between waiting and being alert. And what Jesus is saying is that don't just simply wait on Christ's return. He's coming back, you know. And, but he said, no, be alert, to be alert, right? The problem is, is that in those times, I knew what time was practice, and I think my parents knew what time practice was. And so I would know the time to be out there. I knew how much time it would be and, and how, how long it would take. But they, but, it, but when, when, when the Son of Man talks about not knowing the time, right? And to stay alert, that's when we have problems. And so this is the reason why on one end, he gives a positive example. He says, whether he comes at nine o'clock PM, whether he comes at 12 PM or 12 AM, or whether he comes in the, the next morning, you just don't be ready, but stay alert. Stay alert in the same way a servant stays alert for their master. But in this other way that he says, the negative example is it would be the same way that you would stay alert if a thief kept breaking into your home, right? If you knew somebody was going to break into your home today, tonight, what would you do differently? You would prepare yourself. You would get ready. You would set alarms. You would put your ring on. Whatever you, you would do, you would set it up so that you would be alert, to, both to deter, but also ultimately to prevent a break-in. And Jesus was saying in that same manner that if you knew a thief were coming in, stay alert. When we first moved into um, Blueprint Church, we had over seven break-ins at the church in the first couple of weeks. Seven break-ins. That, you know, and so we thought about, well, do we need to sleep here? What do we need to do? You know, we were just, we're here, we're new to the neighborhood. What do we need to do in that first, you know, time? And, um, and that was one of the things, but no one knew exactly when the break-ins were going to happen, right? It was over a, a couple of um, weeks, period. But so, but it was like, how are we doing And So we ended up like, let's get an alarm. Let's do what, you know, and it was just this idea of we knew Something was happening, and so we didn't just want to wait until the next time it happened. We wanted to be alert. We wanted to anticipate that. And so what Jesus does right here is that he gives both a positive example of someone coming back from a celebration and in a negative example of someone coming in. But because, and again, what's the problem? I mean, what's the point of these two parables or these two points of this story is that we don't know the time. It's one thing to be aware and to be alert when you know the time, but when you don't know the time, how do we remain focused, especially when you got 50 to 70,000 thoughts coming at you every single day? How do you stay alert? How do you? Because I can tell you that Jesus is coming back soon, but you're like, yeah, yeah, we've heard that before. Y2K has already come and gone, Right? And, and, and so what we have is it's like, okay, when is he coming? When is he coming? And it was just like, and, and, and many of us probably don't really believe he's going to come back in our lifetime. He, he is coming. We believe he is coming, but not in my lifetime. 
So we kind of live life without a sense of urgency, without a sense of alertness that he has. And Jesus says, that's the wrong way to see it. He says, I understand that you may not know when the thief is going to break in. You may not know when the master is going to return, but you stay ready. You stay ready. And this is the very question that the disciples wanted to know. It is the very thing that we desire that in the, that the last words that Jesus said when he was in his earthly state, he said the, the, the question to the disciples in Acts chapter 1 and 7, it says, you are, um, he says, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore Israel? Is it, is it now the time? And what does Jesus say? He says, you will not know. You are not permitted to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you wait. Wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Is that going to be one day, two days, 50 days? How long, Lord? How long do we have to wait? Wait, right? But it, that idea is to wait with a sense of alertness, wait with a sense of anticipation that we have. And so Jesus sets the table. He gives them this parable. And like oftentimes with many of the parables, the disciples was like, Jesus, is, I, I need some further explanation. Can you give me a little insight? And this is where we get up in, in the second half is that Peter, the bold one, who always is kind of saying what we're thinking. Peter comes in in verse 41, and he says this. He says, Lord, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? Who are you talking to? Right? Who is this message, this parable for? Right? Because we're, I mean, you can think about it. It's like we've given our lives. We come to church every Sunday. We, we are here. We're in a city group. We follow you around. Like, you, like, would you consider this way? Like, who are you talking to? Right? Who are you talking to? Who are you talking about? Right? And Jesus, basically, without saying, he answers with kind of with an affirmative. He's like, it's yes. Yes, I'm talking to you. And then basically, Jesus talks about three different types of servants that is waiting, right? And, what, and the results of what happens and ultimately the punishment or the reward that takes place in light of that, right? And so he talks about it. And these are three things that, are, that we're, we're looking at here today, the three types of servants and the rewards that follow um, the first servant is, you see verses 42 to 44, and you can write it on the side of your Bible. The first one is a faithful and responsible servant. Faithful and responsible servant. The second one is a frightful and rageful, rage-filled servant. And then the third one is a fearful and regretful servant. Fearful and regretful servant. And each one of these servants basically characterizes, Jesus characterizes that, but he also talks about the penalty or the consequences that come from that, the posture of that servant's heart. So again, 41, let's pick up the first one, 42 through 44. And this is the faithful and responsible, the faithful and responsible servant. It says this, the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible manager? His master will put in charge of his household servants to give them their allotted food at the proper time. Let me stop there for a minute because let me just give you a little bit of context that's going on right here in this um, 
passage. As we look at the three different servants, we got to recognize a couple of things, that, not, that all three of them are in a similar situation. And the similar situation that all three of them are in is that none of them are owners. None of them are on owners, right? They're simply um, managers. They're managers of God's resources. And so we see this idea of managing the thing. And, and so we talk about this idea of stewardship, that God is calling us to steward our time, our talent, and our treasure, that we say that stewardship is not a subcategory of the Christian life. Stewardship is the Christian life. How you manage God's time, God's talent, and God's treasure for however, time is, however long time is your Christian life. And so what we talk about at Blueprint is that we are to manage all of our time, all of our talent, and all of our treasure to cultivate the three primary relationships of our relationship with God, our relationship with other believers, and our relationship with our neighbors. And that we give the first fruit, the 10%, not to say we're good with God, we give the first fruit to remind us that all of it's God's. And so in all of these, you recognize that you have God's resources are the owner's resources, and the servants, all three of these servants, are simply managers of these resources. The other thing that we see is that not only that they're not owners, the second thing is that they're not in control. They're not in control, right? And what we're going to see right here, the, that, that when you lose control, that, brings, uh, that triggers a certain response in you. That triggers both fear and shame. Fear and shame. It brings anxiety. They did not know when the master was returning. They did not know when the thief was breaking in. They, we do not know when the Lord is coming back. We do not know when the Lord is taking us home. We don't know when the lights are going to be coming down the driveway. Right? And so that can bring a sense of fear, a sense of anxiety, and it triggers something in that. And then whenever that trigger is happening, that the fear, the natural fear response is a fight, flight, or freeze, right? Because we recognize that we're not in control. That's all fear is. Fear is simply the acknowledgement that I'm not in control. I'm not in control. And there's possible danger around the corner, right? And that triggers that. And when we recognize that we're not in control, there's a couple of things that we can do that that trigger can even lead us to an impaired expression or it can lead us into a gift. So the problem is not that we are afraid. The problem is what we do with our fear. What we do with our fear. The problem is not our shame because all shame tells us is that we're human, that we have limits, that we can't hurry Jesus up in his return. We can't end COVID whenever we want to. I'm still kind of waiting for who tells us it's over, right? Like, what's that day? And one of you doctors may tell me later, but, but, who, but we, we, we're not in control, right? And this is what we see is that that triggers certain things in us. And that fear brings about anxiety and that anxiety desires that we want to control. And this is why you get all the phobias agoraphobia, arachnophobia. It's just like whenever we are afraid, we try to control things. And then when we are not in control, then we see our limitations. And so what we do is that when we're not in control of certain parts of life, we say, I got to control at least this part of life. 
And so this is where we see is that both of these stewards are not in control and they're not owners. And so the question becomes is how, how do we respond? Because we, how do we respond to the pain of not being in control and recognizing our limits? Because every day you are faced with that. Every day you are faced. And so in here again, he says, the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible manager his master will put in charge of his household servants to give them their allotted food at the proper time? And he says, blessed, blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. We don't know when God's coming back. We don't know when he's checking in. We don't know those things, but the one who's ready, he says, you've been faithful over a little. I'm going to put you faithful over more. And so it's like, but when are we coming back, Jesus? Let me know so I can get ready. Right? But he's just like, no, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. And he tells us. And so in here we see the first one is that idea of faithful, right? That as he comes in and that this, this, this steward, this servant, this manager of God's time, talent, and treasure, of the master's resources, that he comes in and he has the same fear that he still he doesn't have control. He's still limited, but he allows that fear lead to faith. There's nothing wrong with being afraid, but it's what we do. And that's why the Bible says do not do not, the God did not give us the spirit of phobia. He did not give us the spirit of fear, the, the idea of phobia of being controlled by our fear. But he also tells us that the beginning of fear is the wisdom of the Lord. So fear is not the problem. It's what we do with our fear. And so in here, he describes him as faithful. Well, what we recognize is that when I'm not in control over the things that, um, that I want to be in control over, I, I then turn to the one who is in control. And so who is omnipotent? Who is all-powerful? Jesus. And this is the reason why when we're not in control, it can either lead us to self-reliance and self-dependence and us trying to control things, or it can turn into, I'm not in control, but I can go talk to the one who is in control. And this is the reason why we pray. This is the reason why we go to the Lord, that we beseech him. We come to him because we are at his mercy, because he's the only one that is in control. And so we come so it can lead us to faith. So the question and what we do out of a response of our fear is a reality of where your faith is. And so he calls this first servant faithful. Why is he faithful? Because he has stayed ready, because he has trusted, he has put his confidence, not in himself, but he's put his confidence in God. And when he's faithful, when he responds with faithfulness, putting his confidence in the Lord, he also recognizes he's able to embrace his shame, his limits. And so this is why it says he's not only faithful, but he's also sensible. Another word that some of your translations may have is that he's sober. He has a correct understanding of who he is. And see, that's, it puts us in the right position because this is kind of where God is. Is like, this is like, well, good, this is great. We have, a, we have a great setup here. Let me be God and you be human. We don't like being human. We want to be God. 
We want to be superhuman, right? That's why we love our Marvel movies, right? We want to get an escape. We want to, we want to be more in control of our destiny. But the, the, the faithful person is one who is faithful and he's sensible. He's sober-minded. He has a correct understanding of who he is. He knows that he's not in control of the good times and the bad times. He's not in control of when the manager's coming or when it's going. He's not in control, but the best thing that he can do is to stay ready so he doesn't have to get ready. And what does it say? It said it a couple of times in 35 to 40, but it says it again here, blessed. Blessed are those. Blessed is that servant. That is the servant that's blessed. The one who recognizes that they're not in control. The one that recognizes that they're limited. And the Bible says it in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are sober. Blessed are those who are needy. Blessed are those who are hungry. Blessed are those, right? And so in here, Jesus says the people that are blessed are those people who are faithful and sensible. And he says, they will receive a reward, right? He says, God will give them more because they've learned the secret to stand faithful, to stand dependent. So on one, we see both faithful and sensible, or what we said is faithful and responsible, right? So on one end, we see that the faithful and responsible servant, he says, their rewards will ultimately be great. So he leads again with one positive, but then he gives us two negative examples. So he starts with the faithful, the responsible, sensible manager. But then he goes and talks about in verses 45 and 46, the frightful and feel enraged field servant. It says this, but if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and starts to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink and get drunk. That servant's master will come on a day when he does not expect him and at, at, and at an hour he does not know and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unfaithful. So on the first, we see basically Jesus setting the scene with the faithful and responsible servant. But then right here, what we see is a frightful, enraged, filled servant. And he starts off with the contrast. And what I love about this, especially how the CSB translated, it starts off as, but if. And so in there, it says that there's, this is in contrast. So this first servant is in complete, direct contrast to what we just said, the positive example, now with the negative example. And there's that, that conjunction, but. But what I also love is that, but if that servant, that servant. So in this translation, basically the way they're interpreting it is that we're talking about the potentially of the same servant. Right? And there's differing and different translations that you've been taking, whether they're talking about a, this, a same servant, and he's referring back, he says, but if that servant, or if he's talking about even a completely different servant. But, but if we know, and if we live life, we know that sometimes we feel like we're the faithful and responsible servant, but sometimes we're, we respond in the more frightful and, and the rage to feel the servant. But if that servant... In his heart, says, my master is delaying in his coming and starts to beat the male and the female servants and eat and drink and get drunk. That servant's master will come 
on a day when he does not expect, in an hour that he does not know. Right, right here, what, I, what, what you see in here is that if the servant starts saying in his heart that there's starting to come doubt, doubt starts creeping in. He's been gone a long time. I wonder if something happened. Is he even coming back? Right? And at that point, you now kind of declaw the master. Right? Does he, and it's when you begin to declaw, and when you start thinking God is no longer for you, he's no longer coming back, then that's when fear really kind of takes on. It's like, I no longer have anywhere to take my fear to, so I got to take, I got to fight for myself. And that's when we begin to try to get controlled, right? You ever heard of the phrase, hurt people hurt people? What I would say is that it's not just hurt people that hurts people, it's hurt people who are unwilling to confess their hurt hurt people. And it's the same thing is true here. It's fearful people who are not willing to confess that they're afraid end up causing fear in other people. And if you notice in here, in this passage, what happens? He starts questioning. He's afraid. Is he coming back? What am I going to do? You know, and start, and as he begins to doubt, what it, what it says, the immediate reaction is that he starts to be everywhere else. I got to take matters into my own hands. I got to start controlling the environment because they're not going to listen to me like they listen to the master. So I got to be some fear into them. And he said they start beating them. He starts getting drunk. He starts trying to do things to escape the reality of his fear. And so fearful people become control-oriented people, and control-oriented people become anxious, and anxious people try to control their environments. And this is why so many people who are scared to death end up trying to dominate the home because they want to create that space. They want to create that, and all it is is that their own fear. And so what we see right here is that, that if this servant says in the heart that this same servant at one point who was able to climb the ladder of leadership, right, and get to a place where he's even responsible of the servants, now he's, he has lost his heart. He has lost his way in there, and now he's become a legalist, right? Legalists know how to climb up the ladder of the leadership ladder. They know how to go up. They know, they know how to look and to, to do. They, they know how to do these things. But, but what we see is that this same servant who could have been in light is now walking in darkness. They're walking in darkness. And it started with the doubt that the fear brought. And that, and that brought in a frightfulness, that, this impaired expression, again, that goes into this fight, flight, or freeze mindset. And so this is why in a time with this, with so many trauma-triggering things that are taking place in our society today, this is why you see so many people in this posture of fight, flight, or freeze. People are ready to go to blows. People are ready to fight with one another. People are even running away and just like trying to hide and just trying to escape from reality. So we go to Netflix, we'll go to YouTube, we'll go to everywhere else. It's like anything we can do just to escape our current reality, right? Or there's a group of us that are just like, I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. And we just we get um, stuck with a paralysis of analysis. And so what we see is that this person, right, these people that are afraid, they kind of take responsibility. This servant takes on responsibility for themselves because the master's not coming back or they don't know. They got tired of his delay and rage begins to fill. 
and he tries to take control over his environment. He starts beating his servants. He starts eating and drinking, trying to escape from reality. That's the typical fight, fight or freeze that we see taking place there. And so what is the punishment for this person? The, the servant's master, and I love it how it says, there comes a day where he does not expect him in an hour that he does not know, and he will cut him down into pieces and assign him a place with the unfaithful. Right here, one of the scary things is, is that you may get to the end and say, oh, okay, he's going to get his due. But the scary thing is, is that this person, for a season, a time, and for a while, he got away with it. He got away with it. He was able to be the servants. He was able to keep getting drunk. He even probably had thought at some point that he was getting away with it. Right? But what I love is that he does not expect him. All of a sudden, Jesus, the master, he comes back. And in the same way, he wasn't expecting the master to return. One day he, he does. And when he comes in, he says he will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the unfaithful. Now, that's weird. That's kind of scary. Right? And there's, again, there's different thoughts by different commentators about this, this idea. of What does it mean? Does that mean that Jesus is, like, kind of coming through with the sword and, like, Wu-Tang? Or, like, you know, just like... What is Jesus doing, right, when he comes back? Is he, you know, and so this, this, what does it mean basically to be cut off, right? Is Jesus talking about eternally being cut off? Is Jesus talking about temporarily being cut off? Or is he talking about convictionally, right? Which one is it? And, I, and again, I believe in illustration in the story that there's room for us to kind of embrace all. And this is kind of alluding to all three. Now, for someone who believes once saved, always saved, that you cannot lose your salvation because it's not built upon your faithfulness, but it's built upon the faithfulness of Christ. That it's not built upon your works, but on the personal work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that what does it mean that if you're cut away, cut off, and then even at the end, it says that you're cut off and then you are placed with the unfaithful. I'm cutting you into pieces and I'm placing you with the unfaithful. For people like me who believe that you cannot lose your salvation, what does that mean? Um, and how does that look? Is that these are the people that you have. These are the legalists. These are the cultural Christians. These are the people who were never saved. These are the Pharisees of their day that knew how to climb the religious ladder. They knew how to go to church. They knew how to do things, but they never had any real personal relationship with Jesus. And he says that you are going to, that, that Christ says that he's going to separate the wheat from the shaft. He's going to separate the goat from the sheep. That we recognize that there is, that those people who are confessed, those people who walk among us, will not be with us in that time. These are the people that leverage the resources that God has given them to beat down other people because of their own fear, because of their own shame, because of their own limitations. But on another one, it could be temporarily, right? And now where we believe that you can't lose your salvation, but you can be disconnected in your fellowship. And so on one, some people believe, some scholars believe that when you come in, that when Jesus comes back, that those who really were saved, those who really did trust in Jesus Christ alone, not in their works, those people that even though that they may still be connected relationally, they've been disconnected 
fellowship-wise. This is like the, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 11 where he says, don't associate with any so-called believer. That we don't have a heaven or a hell to put anybody in. But there are times that we recognize that sin separates us. And that when we're in our sinful ways that we feel this disconnected between us and God in that disconnection between us and his body. And this is the reason why, that there's this temporary disconnectedness. But he says, even in those situations, you're doing that for the purpose of bringing them back. Jesus wants you to feel that distance so that you can come back to him relationally. And so there's this cutting off temporarily, not from relationship, but from fellowship. Or it could be convictionally, that those are the believers that are literally cut up into pieces in their hearts. And the impact of their sin and the weight of how I addressed my brother or my sister that I disagree with, how I came at, how I tore down my children today. And, and I allowed my own fear about my current circumstance to control or to get the best of me. And I've raged out and I'm just torn up that there was the Spirit's conviction that causes me that, it like, that, I, that I recognize that I'm more closely aligned to the unbeliever than I am to the believer that understands that I'm to be a faithful servant. That in these, that whether it is, it's eternally, temporarily, our conviction, I think it brings the same and drives the same port that it says don't lose focus. Don't allow shame and fear to take over or to take control, but stay alert, stay focused on the one who, who, who can overcome all of our fear. Stay focused on the one who has all power when we're limitless, right? And so he says that. He says those people, they're going to have a stronger judgment. But then the third one is, and we'll close with these last two, is that there's a fearful and a regretful servant. Where the first one experienced looked like heavy discipline, this fearful and regretful servant had lighter discipline. Verse 47 says this, and it says, and that servant, again, connecting the and, it's not a but, he's connecting it to the, to the second servant, and that servant who knew his master's will and didn't prepare himself to do it, it will be, it will be severely beaten. But the one who did not know and did what deserved punishment will receive a lighter Right? So in context, what we got to understand that this third expression right, led to where the first one led to a fight, the second one led to a flee kind of um, mentality, um, a, fly, a flight or a freeze mentality. But this right here, this servant I, I named is more fearful and regretful, that he allowed his fear to lead to a life of regret. He buried his talents. He buried his He did nothing. Right? There's two types of sin that offends God. There's the sins of commission and the sins of omissions. The sins of commission are the things that we do, that we know that dishonors God. That's things like gossip, slander, adultery, fornication, right? These, those are things that we do that we know offends a holy God. That's sins of commission. But there's also sins of omission. And those are the things that we're supposed to do, but we don't do, right? Those are sins like making disciples, going and sharing our faith praying and being dependent, loving our neighbor, that God has been really clear on these are the things that we are, ought to do, but we have turned kind of God's commandments to God's kind of mild suggestions. 
And it's kind of like we, we treat kind of God's commandments as kind of multiple choice. I'll take this one, that one. And so there's sins of omission. And he says, for that servant, the ones who did nothing, he says, they're going to experience discipline as well. But he talks about they will receive a lighter beating, right? And I think that there is a sense of regret that, that we have. Man, I could have used that opportunity better. Right? There's a sense of regret when, I'm, when you're sending off your kids to college. There's a sense of regret. It's like, man, I lost that moment. I lost this moment. Or that friendship. Or that is like, oh, man, I could have. What are those regretful things that we do? And basically, Jesus ends this passage with saying, why is he so hard on the servants? And this is where, this is the point at the end of verse 48, the point of this message. Stay ready so you have to get ready. Why? Verse 48, the second part. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. From the, from, and from the one who has been entrusted much, even more will be expected. I really don't believe Jesus is talking about your financial status or how many resources you have. Basically, I, and, and I believe that he's referring to all of the servants. Every one of the servants, anybody who is naming the name of Jesus Christ has been given much because you have been given Jesus the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And in, in receiving him, you have received the greatest gift that you could ever possibly have. And to him that has been given much, much is required. And this is why Paul says that we are in debt. We are in debt to him. And I really think that this is really important for us because we got to recognize that the goal of the gospel is not a self-help program for you. The goal of a gospel is not even a better version of yourself. The goal of the gospel is not someone who is filled with self-reliance or self-dependence. The goal of the gospel is someone who's full of faith. Not in themselves, but they're full of faith in the one who, who is in control. They're full of faith in Jesus. The goal of the gospel is where we stop looking at ourselves and we start looking at Christ. We're constantly waiting for his return. We're constantly anticipating him. The goal of the gospel is being filled with the spirit of Christ. And this is why we see first Peter, Peter, who asked the question. You remember, he asked us the question. God, who are you talking to? He took it to heart. And he reminds the, to the church that has been scattered because of persecution in the church of, in first Peter. What does he say? in the midst of persecution, in the midst of being, going through from very trauma, trauma, traumatizing times. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3.15, he says, but first sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Be ready always to give a defense of the hope that is within you. Keep focus on him. So how do we stay ready so we don't have to get ready? We gotta clarify we got to know who we are in the gospel. We got to live with conviction. We got to know why we do what we do in Christ. And we got to live with passion. We got to respond with the love of the gospel. He who has been given much, 
He who has been given the personal work of our Lord and Savior is required much. We're stewards of, 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 of God's gospel. We're stewards of God's grace. Right? Let's not grow weary in where we're doing. Let's not turn in his word as a tool to beat God's people, to beat other people. Let's remain watchful to our serving by clarifying, living with conviction, and living with passion. Just imagine that if we lived our lives in a way that like the theologian in the past, that all we did is that we fought to stay alert on Jesus. I really believe that we would live a lot more spirit-filled lives. Spirit-filled lives because it's when we get more of him, we get less of us. The faithful and responsible servant is the servant that knows what to do with their fear and knows what to do with their limitations. They take it to the one who has no fear. It has no limitations. They're filled with faith. That's the only way for us as believers. That's our confession to him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the grace that you've given us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for this time and this period, Lord, that you put us in, in this season, Father, where we're not in control, whether we have masks or not masks, whether we get COVID or not get COVID get cold like we're where we think we're in control but we're not in control we don't know when the next tragedy is going to come when the next murder is going to come or when who's going to be elected next like we are not in control of so many things lord and that is scary but father i pray that each and every one of us as we confront or combat our both our fear father in our shame and our limitations lord that we would be reminded of you and we would take them to you, Father, and we would live a life of sobriety. We would live a life of faith in you. And I pray, Father, that there's anybody in here that has transferred their trust and put their trust in themselves, that they would, at this time, transfer their trust from themselves and put it in Christ and in Christ alone, that he who died for our sins, and I pray, Father, for your will to be done in their lives. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Help us to be ready so we don't have to get ready. Keep us attentive on you. Father, we love you, we bless you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.